Section 29 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Fourth Decade, Chapter 2, The Prince of Wales in Aquitaine and in Spain, Part 1. In 1362, the Prince of Wales was married to his cousin, the Fair Maid of Kent, becoming thus the third husband of that beautiful princess, and she, in 1364, bore him a son, Edward, surnamed of Agoulême, who died at the age of seven years, and in 1366, a second son, afterwards King Richard II. Shortly after his marriage, Prince Edward was created Duke of the reconstituted English dominion of Aquitaine, his father having wisely determined to keep the absolute sovereignty of the territory in his own hands, and for this government he started the following spring. He found Charles the Dauphin writhing under the Treaty of Bretigny and ever on the watch for opportunities of fomenting discord among the new subjects of the prince. The French regent still felt unequal to an open rupture, and was waiting upon circumstances with a foresight and patience which won him his surname of the wise, and was amply justified by the ultimate result, so disastrous to England and so fortunate for France. While he was pursuing this policy of masterly inaction, he had singled out a man of remarkable military capacity named Bertrand du Guesclin to carry on his wars with the King of Navarre, who was now virtually in possession of Normandy, though he had left the lieutenancy of it to his brother Philip, and withdrawn to his own Spanish dominions. Philip of Navarre died in 1363, and du marched with his free companions into Normandy. He was a man of low associations, and rough in looks and manners, but possessing the sovereign faculty of command. He warred after his own fashion, caring more for victory than the rules of war or the punctilios of chivalry, and the success of his tactics contributed not a little to the decline of that brilliant but artificial condition of society. He got possession of many strong places held for the King of Navarre, and gained a crushing victory at Cocherel over the Captal de Bouche, whom that sovereign had appointed his lieutenant in Normandy on his brother Philip's death, and sent him a prisoner to Paris in 1364. During his captivity there, the Coptal had secret orders from the king to arrange a peace with the government of France, and this he accomplished on advantageous terms for his master, who, after his base and treacherous conduct all round, thereby recovered the whole of the territory that he had lost in Evreux. In Brittany, the old quarrel still raged on, but it was on the eve of extinction at last. John de Montfort had laid siege to Auré and begged for help from the Prince of Wales, who sent the brave old John of Chandos and Sir Robert Knowles to his assistance. Charles of Blois sought aid from Charles the Wise, now King of France, who sent de Guesclin to reinforce him. A decisive battle was fought under the walls of Auré, in which du Guesclin was made a prisoner, and Charles of Blois unhappily or happily slain. A treaty of peace was signed by his widow, the heroic Jean of Pontievre, in 1365, by which that earldom was secured to her and her heirs forever, 
and John de Montfort was left in undisputed possession of the Duchy of Brittany. A new set of actors now enter upon the scene. The table of the kings of Castile shows how its reigning sovereign, Pedro the Cruel, ascended the throne on the death of his father, Alfonso XI, in 1350. He was crowned at the age of 16, and when 18 years old was married to Blanche Bourbon, youngest sister of Jeanne, the wife of Charles the Dauphin of France. But the sympathies of the reigning French dynasty leaned, as will be remembered, to the de la Cerdas, the elder branch of the family of Alfonso X. Pedro inaugurated his reign like a king of Dahomey or Ashanti with a batch of assassinations, the first of his victims being Leonora de Guzman, the mother of his illegitimate brother, Henry of Trastamar. Each succeeding year was marked by cruel and vindictive executions, the victims being the most eminent of the Spanish nobles, three of his own half-brothers, and lastly, the unhappy Bourbon princess whom he had made his wife. Charles of France deeply resented the murder of his kinswoman, and his pride was stung by the fact of Pedro's declaring that when he married the sister-in-law of the Dauphin, he had a wife living, Maria de Padilla, to whom, in fact, he returned two days after the marriage. But Charles had another reason for regarding Pedro as an enemy. He was the ally of England. Friendly relations had long subsisted between the Plantagenets and the family of Pedro. Eleanor of Castile had been the beloved and devoted wife of Edward I. Joan, daughter of Edward III, had been affianced to Pedro himself when cut off by the plague in 1348. And a treaty, offensive and defensive, had been made between the two sovereigns in 1362. King Charles saw that he could strike a blow at England through Don Pedro, without infringing the Treaty of Bretigny. But the King of Castile had a more dangerous enemy in the Pope whose wrath he had incurred by oppressing the church and holding amicable communications with the Moorish king of Granada. On his refusal to appear before the papal court to answer these charges, Urban V, severely and in all probability conscientiously orthodox, legitimized his half-brother Henry of Trastamar and encouraged him to avenge his mother's assassination and aspire to the throne of Castile. Urban joined with the King of France in hiring the companies to support the claims of Henry by arms and in ransoming Du Guesclin for 100,000 francs in order to place him at their head. Du Guesclin found little difficulty in engaging the services of the companies, though he thought it necessary to represent to them that the expedition was directed against the infidels in the south of Spain. If, however, they should come across Don Pedro on their way, they would not fail to harass and anger him. The next step was to remove the ban of excommunication which the Pope had laid upon the companies and to procure absolution for them at his hands. Urban urged that an absolution was always paid for. If he granted this, they had no claim upon the 200,000 florins which he on his part had engaged to pay them. Duguesclin only laughed at this pretext and repeated his demand but when he found that the Pope was raising the money by taxes imposed upon the Avignonese, he refused to receive a coin, 
unless the full tale was paid out of the papal treasury. Among the leaders of the Allied invaders were Calverley, Knowles, and many other English and Gascons owing fealty to King Edward, who wrote them a peremptory warning to desist from the undertaking, and not to take up arms against the noble prince, the King of Spain. But they were already beyond the Pyrenees. At Barcelona they were joined by Henry of Trastamar in 1366, and a message was sent from thence to King Pedro that they were coming, and intended to open the roads and passes of his kingdom to the pilgrims of God, who with great devotion had undertaken to enter the kingdom of Granada to avenge the sufferings of our Lord, destroy the infidels, and exalt the true faith. Don Pedro laughed as well he might at their transparent hypocrisy, and sent back word that the king of Castile would have nothing to do with such a set of vagabonds. But he had miscalculated his resources, and underrated the vehemence of the hatred which his cruelties had provoked. One Spanish lord, and one only, joined his standard, Fernando de Castro, the brother of the hapless Inez, queen of Portugal, over whose fate the poet Camuish dropped many a melodious tear in after days. The revolution was bloodless, and Henry of Trastamar found himself king of Castile without striking a blow, and in fact embarrassed by the strength of his army, whom he had some difficulty in persuading to return without fighting anybody to France. Pedro, glad to escape with his life, took refuge in Seville, and thence made his way through Portugal to the court of the Prince of Wales at Bordeaux, and threw himself on his protection. His two daughters, Constance and Isabel, accompanied him, and the exiles seemed to have exercised a strange fascination over the prince. He refused to listen to the advice of his counsellors, who represented to him that the banished king was a cruel and a wicked tyrant, whose calamities were the manifest punishment of God to chastise him and give an example to other kings. In the eyes of chivalry, a dethroned monarch, though guilty of every crime, and justly detested by his subjects, was as legitimate an object for sympathy and assistance as a prisoner in pain and captivity, or a maiden in danger of violence. The question was, however, referred to England, where King Edward and his council took the same view as the Black Prince, and decided that he should support the claims of his suppliant with all the forces at his command. As for the payment of the war expenses, Pedro made large promises. He had, he said, great treasures hidden away in Castile, and covenanted to pay a sum of 600,000 florins before next midsummer. John of Chandos and other experienced advisers of the prince, anticipating treachery, but seeing that their master's mind was already made up, prevailed on him to coin his gold and silver plate into money, and to beg his father to send him the next installment of the ransom of King John. The prince, unfortunately, made himself personally responsible for the payment of the expenses of the war, relying on the good faith of Don Pedro, who left his two daughters, Constance and Isabel, as hostages with the English court. End of section 29